I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, I was reading an article about Michelle Macaron's new shaping of her gallery, and there was kind of a not-so-nice reference to what she's doing in an art publication. And I was struck by the idea that they probably didn't understand what she was doing, maybe they didn't take the time to, or maybe it felt kind of threatening because it's pretty innovative. So we've been friends a long time, and I reached out to her to see if she was interested in being a guest on my podcast. She immediately agreed, and our conversation is great, fascinating, inspiring, filled with ideas and future collaborations, I'm certain. Before we get to it, here is a message from our sponsors. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email 
custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Michelle Macaron is the founder of Macaron Gallery. Shortly after 9-11, she opened an unorthodox space in a remote neighborhood with no other galleries around. From the beginning, the gallery was an outlier in every way. It's always been artist-driven and it grew out of conversations. It was more of a concept or a laboratory for experimentation and that didn't quite fit the traditional mode of an art gallery. Recently, the gallery's focus is beyond in-real-life exhibitions. It is defining itself as a creative brand that not only manages artists and produces special projects, but also collaborates with venues and corporate partners to create experiences outside of the physical gallery space. She and I talked about art collecting as hoarding, the unlimited possibilities of working digitally, art as a world practice instead of a studio practice, the grand idea, the conceptual gesture of putting art on eBay and Pornhub, upending art world protocols, art in transition, fear of art, and freedom. I wanted to start off by talking about your email newsletter, your first newsletter that went out that redefined or maybe like re-clarified, I think, the intention of, of how you work with art. And I just found it to be really innovative and exciting and wanted to start off just by asking you to recap for our listeners what some of the strategies are that you've taken throughout your career and where you are now and, and where you're planning to go. Uh, thanks. Uh, how do I say this? So a colleague had been urging me to write a newsletter because he said, every time I talk to you, you're really thinking outside the box and you're not talking about someone who's overly concerned about the art world, but you're thinking about art in general and across hybrid. And you're talking about branding and not just the walls of a gallery and exhibition to exhibition. And he really encouraged me to think, because Macron was ever, was always a brand for me. And I, if you saw in the newsletter, I originally had a logo, which was Macaron scripted in an, in a, in literally in a, in a noodle in like a, in like a rigatoni, actually a macaroni. And I, at some point, the gallery kept evolving because the art world kept evolving. And at some point, the brand went away in a funny, in, in, in really, I'm just retrospectively in this moment in time has given me a lot of space to think about where, what I wanted and where I ended up. And I feel like I got caught in some sort of wave and was propelled into this place where the art world had a lot of um, protocol and the brand didn't seem to fit. And I was trying to expand the gallery and the artists and kind of stop being punk 
and somehow growing up. And I always thought that, and I think at a certain point it falls apart if that's not in your heart of hearts, who you are, how you feel about art, and how you want to promote artists and contextualize art. And maybe it comes from a place of being thinking about art history. Maybe it comes from a place of just being a disruptor. And I've always been a disruptor and thought in those terms. And maybe it's a place of really being a curator or maybe it's in a place, I don't want to call myself an artist. I never did, but I find myself these days becoming more and more creative. And I'm writing a lot, I'm reading a lot, I'm doing a lot more research. And I'm actually, for the first time, well, I think at another stage of my life, I'm really enjoying what I'm learning. I'm enjoying having a distance. I'm enjoying not being in a gigantic gallery every day without foot traffic and being stressed out about, I'm paying this enormous overhead and nobody comes to see me. And then I thought, well, this isn't even good for the artists. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I'll never, that I won't return to an exhibition space. I mean, of course, that's so necessary for certain artists. And I feel like we're in this weird place where people are still have an attachment and are hanging on to kind of physical, the physical experience with art and artists are working in their studios and they certainly want to have this in-person experience. But at the same time, we've now been, this has been perpetuated of course by the, the virus and what's been perpetuated is this, need and way of reusing the screen. And that's already happened though. And I've been talking about this way before the pandemic and with Instagram, people are really seeing art and learning about art through media. And so now we're actually doing it more. And I see that galleries are opening and museums are trying to open, but at the same time, I feel like this is a really interesting way to start thinking about the next generation who spend all their time on a tablet, playing games. The gaming industry is bigger and has, is bigger than the entertainment industry. And it's only going to continue to get bigger. And I find kids are playing games. They're not gonna go eventually to go see the next play. They're not gonna go to in-person sports, sport, sporting events. Sports are now on a screen. So we're, I'm talking about kids, teenagers. So this idea of going to a museum, um, I don't want to say it's going to be obsolete, but I definitely see a huge shift. Um, and it scares me too at the same time, because I don't see a generation of philanthropy. I don't see a generation of collecting in the same kind of way. And then I get scared. I get scared about collecting. And I, this fear happened a few years ago and I'm walking around North and I'm like, Where's all this stuff going? Are there enough collect? There's so much art. And where does it go? And then it's in storage. And then it's in crates. And then it's getting on planes. And then it's sitting in these warehouses. And it's all this wood. And I started getting like a panic attack almost. And it's who are you selling it to? And a lot of it just sits there. And museums. I mean, it's sort of this um, Malcolm Gladwell did this podcast. And uh, what did he call it? Dragon psychology. It's about hoarding. And museums hoard. And where, what, 
it, like the medis, what is it, 1% or 2 I, I don't know. I'm making up a statistic now, but how much is on view? And how much sits in storage? And it's just this massive accumulation of stuff. And when I think about it, it freaks me out. I don't know. And that's a fundamental thing. I'm thinking, okay, what's the idea about selling art? It's, it's, it, so I'm just fundamentally kind of re, I mean, what's your thought? I mean, you've been in the art world just like me for years and years and years. You've seen a million, you've seen it evolve. You've seen the transformation. You've dealt with physical objects and you're, and like me now, I mean, you're working in a different medium and you're interacting in a really interesting and almost like really groundbreaking way where you have, you, it's like sky's the limit once you end up on, on a screen and once you end up digitally. So I'm just curious about that transition and how do you feel about, you know, what I'm talking about, about real objects. I love art objects. You know, I love artists. I mean, my first love is, is always artists. And, and yeah. like you, that's, yeah. you know, the basis of everything that I do mm-hmm. is the incredible privilege of spending mm-hmm. time with artists and getting to understand how they think and what they're thinking about. And I have always found that to be incredibly like mind bending and like soul enriching um, because I just think that artists are like the contemporary shaman. Right. Like they just way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. They just think differently than than regular people. Um, And it's not to put them on a pedestal or something. It's just to say that, you know, if you're interested in in seeking and wisdom and knowing, I personally find artists to be like a key guide or companion, you know, along that path. So that's always been, I think, at the essence of of what it is that I want to do. And and I do love the object, you know, because I feel like the object has that kind of inherent power also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I struggle with the idea of not being able to be in the physical presence of people um, and objects. And, and I do think that that is, that's something that matters, uh, you know, but I also am realistic and know that not everyone gets to be in the presence of artists and not everyone gets to be in the presence of objects. And so, you know, what is our moral responsibility really of trying to bring this opportunity to as many people as possible? And that's, that's what I'm interested in. And and that's what this kind of new approach for me is, is uh, it, it comes out of that goal of trying to convince people like why they would need art. I mean, that's sort of the departure point is always for me, the artist and the artists I've worked with over the years. It wasn't just about the physical objects. It was also about these ideas and they would just, it was always, I always worked with artists that had grand ideas and the, what they made were just extensions of this grand idea. And I've always loved artists that worked in several different media and were thinking we're thinking not just of a studio practice, but we're thinking about a world practice and accumulating or absorbing everything around them and trying to mirror that. And for the moment, I'm just kind of, I, of course, I mean, I've I've worked with so much art and for me, my love has always been installation. So that, which is, you know, an, an impossible, it's like an impossibility in some ways. 
Um, for me, my love is installation. And I think the reason why I loved installation is be, or installation art is because I think art's an experience. So I completely agree with you about the in-person experience. And I've noticed that what I've been very drawn to is seeing the way that uh, technology has augmented these experiences. And I'm very interested in VR and I'm very interested in kind of expanding the dimension of what we look at. So in theory, I'm talking about these ideas as though I'm leaving the, the world of the object, but I'm talking more about the evolution of it and really thinking about future generations and how they're really gonna experience art and how creators are going to be creative. And I do think about the environment, I do think about environment, environmental things and that's sort of my sort of my questioning of this dragon psychology and it's this is the moment in time that made me rethink all of this although I would love to have an enormous space and have installations and have the public come in and experience it but it's so crazy because even now when I watch I watch a lot of old movies and when people are talking close to each other it's shocking to me. And when I see people interact, every time I watch something on television, I'm like completely freaked out. And I remember listening to Jerry Seinfeld's, um, it was pre-corona, he did a special. And he's talking about going to restaurants and interactions. And I almost thought this comedy doesn't even make sense to me. And it sounded so otherworldly and so abstract because my I don't leave my house. And, you know, I've turned into, now it's like, I don't know. It's not coronavirus for me. It's I enjoy being at home. I enjoy being here and having time to read and think and not driving around and running to this and sitting somewhere. And so, yes, I mean, I kind of miss people. <laughs> so I had this really formative experience when Richard Tuttle came and sat in my office one time and he was explaining to me something very similar to, to what you said, which is his theory that all art is actually invisible and that, you know, the physical manifestations are only sort of a, like a remnant of uh, something which, yeah. you know, it exists like in physical space, but it's, it's actually not art um, because the art itself is invisible. And, I mean, if you sit with that for a second and think about that, I mean, that kind of profound thinking is, you know, what I find so sort of mind, you know, mind bending and, and seductive. But, you know, I also, I mean, we came into the art world at the same time. And I just remember some, well, I don't know if you saw it, but the dislocation show at the Museum of Modern Art in 1991 um, I was like a kid, but it was the first time I saw David Hammond's work and, you know, Kabakov and um, Louise Bourgeois installation and, and Chris Burden and, and um, Sophie Call. And, and it was all was curated by Rob Storer. And it was the first, I think, museum exhibition that included installation art. And it just, it just changed my whole perspective. And then those early Karen Kalimnik installations, you know, yeah. with like the glitter and like the powder puff and, you know, the painted blood on the wall. And I, I mean, it just, 
that's when I came, that's when I started looking at contemporary art. And, and that I think will always define, you know, my, a big part of my love of art, you know, is that immersive experiential art installation. I also think it goes back to what I was saying before and Richard, what Richard Tuttle was talking about is the grand idea. Like it's about this huge idea and how do you grasp that idea and put it into the world? And I do think artists have this incredible way of doing that. And I love this idea about invisible art because it is so much coming from ideas and think about all the great art artists who are also great writers and thinkers, you know, Smithson, Dan Graham. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and they are thinking invisible, invisibly. That's so fantastic. That's so fantastic. I'm glad you shared that story because it's really, I'm going to be sitting on that one for a while. Talk with me, if you will, about some of the specific projects that you're working on right now. And you have, I'm interested in this platform, which is a a collaboration with eBay Mm -hmm. and that ties back to a bunch of different verticals that you described from, you know, a shop to publications. Can you outline some of the, some of the specifics around that? Sure. Um, it's really interesting because uh, I've been talking to eBay for a while and I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of a really kind of universal non-art world, no parameter, very DIY in a way. I mean, it's kind of clunky. I mean, you can kind of take, anybody can take what they've got and sell it on eBay. And there's something conceptually so interesting because for me, art became so abstract. It's, it's merchandising and it became so sales-centric. And it's, it's almost, to me, it's like this conceptual gesture of, okay, let's sell art on eBay. And eBay started this program where they really are, and they're doing a lot of, you know, of course my first project um, also is going, the proceeds of which are going to Carbon 180. Um, So it is a charity event. And I'm working on my next project with them, which is an artist um, by the name of Trevor Andrew. And he does this fantastic upcycling. He does these fantastic upcycling projects where he buys objects and then he paints on them and he kind of uniqueifies them. It's not even a word. And so I had pitched to eBay, why don't we have him select items from eBay, upcycle them. He turns those objects into art and then we sell them back onto eBay. And they were so psyched about it and they're actually sponsoring it, which is amazing. Um, we had some delays, so I'm not quite sure if that's going to happen this month or next month, probably next month, but it's those kinds of ideas of manipulating, not manipulating, it's not the word, but kind of using some structures which already exist. And I, you know, I did an incredible collaboration with Pornhub Uh, which I would like to continue working with them. They have a thousand interesting ideas. And these are very accessible platforms. And Pornhub, there's art on Pornhub. There are, Pornhub, I love Pornhub. I love eBay because they're kind of these open platforms. And Pornhub, you can upload whatever you want. And I know Pornhub gets into trouble 
you know, because there's things on there which are incredibly difficult, but they catch it, they take it off when they can. And because things are, it's freedom. You can't do this on Instagram. You can't do this anywhere, anywhere on the web. Anybody can put any content on Pornhub at any time. And there's something about these open source platforms that I find super exciting and how art can be engaged there. And there's no limitations. There's no doing a show and having to put disclaimers or doing a show in, in public where you have to think about the financial ramifications or something and the selection and collectors and context and so on and so forth. So I've always been really interested in those kinds of freedoms. So those are two collaborations, which I'm really proud of and really interested in as much as they seem very controversial. Uh, but that's what I mean about pushing the boundaries and kind of really expanding what I'm doing. We're also playing with our um, website and I'm really playing with it. And I'm trying to make it not just what people have been doing about viewing rooms, but really kind of incorporating film, video, blogging. I mean, that's what the newsletter is. So I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, they may get really not like the first one. Like there may be ones where I'm talking about um, films pre-Hayes Act and talking about the Hayes Act and talking about, you know, the history of McCarthyism and censorship. I, I think for me, censorship is my biggest thing. And, you know, Paul McCarthy... So Big Secret's absolutely one of my favorite artists. And he's constantly pushing that limit. And filmmakers push that limit. And writers push that limit. And I don't see the art world pushing that limit. And that's what's frustrating to me, is I'm trying to kind of, you know, right now, you know, I, I, you know, Bjarne Melgaard's another one of my favorite artists. I mean, they're really pushing things. And, you know, there's cancel culture and... There's so much going on in the world and it's so infused by so many parameters. And the art world to me started closing in on me with those parameters. And I just think art excludes all of that. So, I mean, that's sort of where my thinking is and why I'm interested in all these sort of other platforms. I'm also interested, I would love to do something streaming on Snapchat, I'm really interested in media. I would love to get an artist involved in a game and get an artist to design a game and, I, and I'm, I'm working with artists that I think are up, are up for that, or up for that challenge. And doing a lot of collaborations with fashion too, which I'm really interested in. So that's what I was going to ask. So you talked, or you referenced the idea that the collaboration with eBay and with Pornhub are controversial. And certainly one could understand, you know, at least from the outside, why a collaboration with Pornhub might be controversial. But you know, when you say that they're controversial, do you mean within the art world or do you mean without, you know, outside of the art world? And, and both. I mean, I think the art world is sort of, again, there, like I said, there's like protocols. There's a way that business is conducted. Um, also, the funny thing about eBay is art has, and you mentioned it before, art has almost this kind of sacredness to it. And I think even putting it on eBay, it doesn't detract from that because it's internal. Mm -hmm. And what's happening on eBay, yeah, it may find, it may be more difficult to find an audience. And it's really hard to navigate eBay, which I also find really interesting. Um, and it, it is, and I used this word before, it's clunky. It's, 
old school. It's very early internet. And there's something kind of antiquated about that. And it's, it's not the most perfect technology, but art, we haven't transitioned to perfect technology yet. And I think art is in a huge transition between being the way that we have traditionally thought about it in person on walls in rooms and this other sort of wave of these next generations are looking at it through screens and experience. I mean, it's no big secret, like the ice cream museum, the rain room. I've talked about this endlessly. They're incredibly successful and they do speak to an incredibly large audience. And I think people are fearful of art in a way. I remember people used to talk about going into galleries and there's high deaths and I had a high debt. You know, it's, it's, oh, actually I didn't. I always made it a point that we don't have that actually. But there was still somebody well-dressed sitting at the front of the gallery that's clicking away on the computer. No idea what they were doing, but they're clicking, clicking, clicking away. And there was kind of this barrier. And it's like this white, sterile environment. So I don't know. When you talked about some of the things that made you afraid, including what happens with objects and the, the ecological footprint of the way the art world has been. And there's been a lot of talk about that. And certainly the reduction of, of being on planes and sleeping, you know, not at home and um, being outside of a, of a regular routine. I've really enjoyed that, you know, in the last six months. And, and I think probably most people have. But I guess what I'm curious about is there's no question that the art world's changing now. And I'd been back to a few museums. I'd been in a few galleries. And I, I just want something that feels exciting. And I'm not sure if that does. So it makes me both excited about what is coming, but also a little a little melancholic, you know, a little, um, I feel that remorseful maybe of, you know, what, what we won't have anymore. So I I wonder, and we're not there by the way, we're still in this transition period where people are attached to the physical object. And I think a lot of galleries are still stuck in this tradition because they don't know what else to do. And I'm just like, whoa, I see the writing on the walls here. I'm going to think outside the box and feel like, how can we perpetuate? How can we draw a larger audience? Um, But I am nostalgic. I love objects. I mean, you've seen so many of the exhibitions I've done and how material the artists are that I work with. Very material. And I love material. So you're right. And, And I feel completely nostalgic about it. And I love going to museums and I love experiencing art in person, but um, these months have really made me consider what, I mean, I just remember going to Gustav Metzger's studio years ago before he died. And the first question he posed to me is how did you get here? And I said on an airplane, he was like, Nope. And he was talking, I mean, he's someone really, if you're going to talk about invisible art, Um, but he was really opposed to traveling and taxing the environment. And I think that was the first time I was like all these art fairs and I started thinking about crates. And when he posed that question, I was really startled by it. And it's here I am in the art world thinking I'm doing all these great things and I'm supporting art and artists. And at the same time, 
it, it shook me. This might be sort of an obvious question, but do you think it's good for art to have more people interested in it? Do you think there's a downside to having more people interested in art? I'll be the person to say, I want as many people in the world to experience what I've loved and what I've learned from. And, and I know this is gonna be, I mean, you're gonna hear, I probably don't, I mean, I can understand how I'm maybe one of the few that's going to say that. And it's so crazy because I watch so much film and Tanita is incredible art. And William Wyler was an incredible genius. Hitchcock's a genius. And you look at, and they're looking through lenses just as any great artist would. And I just don't anymore see a difference between a filmmaker, a fashion designer. I've really broke those boundaries. And I've been talking about this for a while, which is a hybrid genre. And for me, it's not just taking fine art. It's calling, I mean, that's the other thing. I'm gonna go back to Trevor for a second. The first time I went to his studio, he was making clothes. And the clothes were collaged from other clothes. His, his house caught on fire and he saved what he could save. And he made these unique garments which were sewn together from remnants. And I thought, this is incredible. This is incredible. And then, you know, there's a big fashion house which is interested in taking these unique de designs and actually producing them. And I thought, wow, that's even great. That's great. That's the greatest thing is to have these unique, these unique, incredible works then becoming fashion as long as they use um, environmentally sound, upcycled, local, <laughs> local fabrics. I'm really, I mean, this is a big thing that I'm kind of obsessed with. I won't buy clothes anymore. I have enough clothes. I just won't buy clothes anymore. Um, but that's just something very personal. So I agree with you. I think that my life's work and what I'll be committed to, you know, until the end is this idea of trying to get as many people to fall in love with art in the way that I have. And that's what gets me up every day. Um, and, you know, I'm agnostic about the delivery system also. So, you know, if something is less intimidating because it takes uh, shape in a way that it looks like something else, that's, familiar, whether it's clothing or film or, you know, furniture or objects, um, or if it comes through a delivery system that is less intimidating because people also buy, you know, clothing um, or, you know, books or food or whatever, you know, on those platforms, um, then, then I'm, I'm good with that too. So. I mean, that's what I find really exciting is is i don't i think we're now at a real and again it's mediation it's instagram it's kind of the availability and it's availability to artists i mean there's artists who have huge careers on instagram who don't show at a gallery and i find that fascinating and interesting and i was going through instagram and seeing you know famous art or what we call famous artists in our world have like 3000 followers and these artists that you've never ever heard of had millions of followers and they're selling their art right off i almost i really wanted to curate a digital show of all those artists i'm, I'm still probably going to do it um 
or maybe do an in-person exhibition at some point. But I'm also interested in various cities. I've been one, I've been obsessed with Vegas. I think Vegas is another really populous city. And I know that they've been trying to get a museum there. And I think the way that a museum would function in, in that kind of city is make it completely experiential, make it high, low, make it really make it artist centric. But at the same time, think about who your public is and they, and, and it's an education process. And I remember going to the mob museum in Vegas and being really impressed about the education. I mean, I told the director, I sat there and of course I'm very picky and I'm very, very opinionated. And I sat there and was like, okay, I'll tell you what would be more functional. I was like, do this and this and this, take these objects, do this, take this, 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 I think it'll look better. And, but you looked at the, I looked at these artifacts and even it was art the way that they drew out and used photographs and collaged them to create these stories about the history you know, the history of gangsters. And I was fascinated. And it's a museum. I mean, there's tons of museums that go outside of art and kind of reincorporate art in kind of the aesthetic in, I mean, you've, how many exhibitions have you put together? I mean, it's exhibition design. And that in and of itself is a great art form. And you contextualize whatever whacked out thing and you put it in this context of a brilliant exhibition design. And there it is. It's on that platform that you were talking about. I've been thinking about these hybrid experiences. And so you're talking about like hybrid creativity where mm -hmm. an artist does, you know, this and this, right? So they like make music and they make art or they are a choreographer, but they also make film. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about some of the things that are missing from the digital experience with art and whether there's a way of doing kind of the both and. So one of the most uh, like fun things that we did in the quarantine was a group wine and cheese tasting. Okay. So it was like a zoom event and there were people from, you know, all over. And there was like, you know, the woman who's like the foremost expert on cheese, you know, Laura, um, blanking on her last name, uh, and this winemaker. And then everyone was in their homes, but in advance of the event, uh, we were all sent, that two bottles of wine and four types of cheese. And so there were instructions, you know, what time you take it out of the refrigerator and, and whatnot. And so there was this combined like hybrid experience where digitally you were with other people, uh, but you were having an in real life experience too, which was about, you know, eating and drinking. So sometimes with exhibition design, for example, you know, sometimes I would have like a smell, you know, or I would focus on the light or there would be kind of a choreography of how people would move through the space and what they would see first and what they would see next and what they would see last, right? And how they would see them from different angles. So I'm interested in this idea of whether we could do sort of like the both and, and if there was like, you know, uh, an experience, an art experience that people could kind of sign on for like at a certain time. But when they signed up, they would also get sent some stuff in the mail. And maybe it would be, you know, like a scent to like open and, you know, have in the space while you're having the experience or, you know, something to wear or something like to read before or to, you know, ring after or so I don't know, it's an evolving idea. 
but well, I think you nailed it. You said the word that I'm, you know, experience an artisan experience, whether you're walking into the Rothko chapel or whether you're at a wine and cheese in, in interaction, it, it's experience. And I think that, you know, the in-person experience right now is, is a bit touchy, but eventually I think experience, whether it's in person or whether it's digital, digital, I, I absolutely believe in that. I definitely think it could be achieved. And I do think that there could be this interaction of the tactile or there could be instructions. I mean, look at artists who made instructional art. I mean, um, look at uh, Alan Capra. Like what if you were given instructions? Okay, sit in a chair, put your air conditioner on or whatever, or a fan, make sure you have a cold glass of water. Um, okay, we're gonna, you're going to experience this artwork, but you're going to create your surroundings, which is the installation or the environment. I mean, that is something, you know, that is something totally achievable digitally and, and shared. I mean, what if it was on a grand Zoom and there were, you know, there are these platforms. I know this company, Media Monk, is making, are making these online galleries in which you can have a waiting room. And so there's 100 people. There could be people in the room interacting. And then there could be like 100 people in a waiting room. And then there could be a vast amount of people kind of watching the people experience. And then you get your turn and then you go in. And so there are these sorts, these companies, and there are these incredible ideas to do exactly what you're saying is, is to make, we're not, we're not totally there yet. And it's also convincing a traditional art world or, which is why I'm talking about a bigger audience for people to experience art because they're going to be more, I think, interested. And I think it's, it's more probable that they'll engage in that kind of way because I think the art world's still kind of hanging on to like, okay, I want to see things. You know, like I wasn't really impressed with people's viewing rooms because I wanted to see something more. And even people that did the VR, it's still in a room. It's like, what if it wasn't in a room? I mean, we're building a Delia Brown exhibition right now, and it pretty much looks like what you can do in a viewing room. We just added a lot of um, film clips and a lot of ready-mades and things like that. But it's still we're still not there and we still, I don't have the technology. I haven't seen a technology that really embodies what we're talking about. It's there, it's coming, it'll be, it's coming. But, and I'm, I'm excited about it, but you're right. It's just, it's right now, it's, it's about finding that experience. I wrote this piece on five tips to look at art because one of the things that I was experiencing or hearing from people at the start of the pandemic when there was this kind of mad rush to create these online viewing spaces for galleries and museums was this effort to embrace a new technology but to use the antiquated system right which is to not explain anything to anyone you know so you made reference to the fact that people would come into a gallery space and there would be a well-dressed attractive person sitting at the front who oftentimes at least when we started, wouldn't even acknowledge people that came into the space, you know, wouldn't even like say hi or, you know, um, as, as if, you know, people were invisible or whatnot. But, uh, and then, you know, to not have labels, you know, to, to not let people know, you know, what they're looking at or what things cost or, you know, to make the barriers of entry so high um, just in terms of like the confidence that someone would need to be able to ignore like all, you know, emotional intelligence signs that would say like, actually don't come in, you're not welcome, 
right? So to have that kind of confidence to push through all of that. Uh, and, you know, even in museums where if the work is not in a traditional format, like, a, you know, a portrait, right? A traditional painted portrait that you're like, okay, that's a person, right? If it's anything that has to do with abstraction or a non-traditional medium or whatnot. So it was all the same stuff in a new format, which was digital, but with the same expectation of no interpretation or explanation. So I talked about like five ways to actually look at art. And the very first tip, the first um, instruction was to actually ground your body and like take a deep breath and, you know, look around and see where you are. So that's similar to what you're talking about with Capra, where, you know, it's like, what's the temperature of the room? Like, are you thirsty? You know, have your basic human needs been met before you can then have this experience with art, which sometimes is challenging. It's interesting because you said something which I think is really, um, it is the kind of inscrutability or that sort of boundary of walking to a gallery and it being kind of um, a little, uh, a little opaque about, you know, what's going on. And we're doing this viewing room and I've seen viewing rooms have a lot of explanation and it's a place where you could do it. And we're doing Delia's show. It's like a 20 year retrospective and there's so much information. She's based her paintings on films. We have an entire film. You can watch a whole film that her um, Philistine Caprice, which is one of her series, was based on this 60s French film, Les Biches. And it's literally, you could watch the two-hour movie on the website. So we're kind of really, maybe it's didactic, but we're trying. We're just working. So it's completely, it's, it's, it's all the secrets about the art are out there. We're putting reviews that describe the work. She's using her own language to describe work. Um, one of the, uh, one of the series is a bit controversial and a little, it may seem a little tone deaf in, in the environment we're thinking, but she wrote a beautiful disclaimer kind of describing what it is that the work was about, where if you didn't have that disclaimer, you'd be like, oh, whoa, that's like not okay. Um, so we are attempting to do that. And I think that that's a really brilliant thing that you said is, is, is the, inf the information factor. And I think that's another way of being able to bring in a broader audience is to be really, um, Ugh, I'm not using the right word, but more pedestrian. I mean, that seems like the wrong word, but um, making it more accessible. I mean, accessibility is key. I think that's right. And the idea is not that people would have to watch the feature length film and read every article and not read everything that's on there, but that it's there and it's available, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a guide uh, and it's, it's a reference. And, you know, if your curiosity is sparked and you want to know more, then you have this huge trove of, of additional information. It's like, we, so we've been watching um, Yellowstone, okay? I don't know if you've oh, watched it. Okay. So great. So, Lots so of great. So great. Amazing. So at the end, you know, we don't get another one until next summer, right? And we won't even get a preview till May. But so what happens at the end when you want more? So then you start Googling the characters or, you know, something about the historical um, relationship of land in Montana or, right? Like, if you're curious, like if you, if you got interested and engaged by something, 
then probably you want some more. And why wouldn't we want to be generous with people's interest? That's all I do. I watch so many films. Um, I watched Toasted New York the other night with um, Cary Grant and Eddie Arnold. And it's about um, Jim Fisk. And it's about uh, Vanderbilt. And it's about these scandals about the stock market um, in the 19th century. And after I, and it was based on, you know, Fisk's girlfriend, Mans, um, Jody Mans. It was all based on real characters and real people. And, and I'm, I'm Googling and I'm understanding and learning and now I'm like ordering books about it. And to me, that's so fantastic that, that we are able to get those kinds of annotations. And, you know, like I said, another big one for me is anything pre-Hays Act. And I'm just trying to get as watching as much film as I can, um, you know, up, you know, in the twenties. And I mean, there are naked ladies in the twenties. There were naked ladies on screen. Amazing. And that didn't happen again until what the seventies. <laughs> yeah. As you're in your home and you're watching movies and ordering books, what else are you doing? How are you spending your time? Uh, working a lot, a lot of zoom meetings, a lot of conversations. Um, I did a project with Grimes. Um, I designed a book with, uh, Alexander, who works with me, he, we kind of, and Grimes, we kind of virtually, it took a long time and we did it. And Alexander's a graphic designer, so he's building Delia's website right now. So we're constantly, I, I mean, I feel really creative. Um, a lot of, you know, Trevor's doing a big show in China and they're going to open it. And so we've been working on kind of, curating the show and writing text. I'm doing a ton of writing. It's been a ton of writing. Um, some of it personal, but most of it is uh, a lot of writing about art and the projects I'm doing. And I mean, my day is so, I was talking to Truly Hall, has a big show opening at the Zabudovich uh, Foundation. And we just went through, we did her book. I mean, we put together her book, which was kind of a monograph and retrospective of all the work she's made so far. And we were doing that for hours a day. And that's what I'm doing. What else am I doing? I, I don't know. I'm certainly not doing anything else but working and watching are you putting? Are you putting any parameters around your time from working at home? Like, do that's, you work seven days a week? That's a yeah. huge issue. I'm kind of... It's funny, the last two weekends, I took a day off and read, I'm reading books cover to cover and just carving out six to eight hours and reading like a 400 page book just in my garden, just front to back. And I've only done that for two weekends and it's been a brilliant thing to do and shutting my phone off. But otherwise I've been working seven days a week, which is kind of a bummer, but I'm enjoying so much what I'm doing. So I can't tell. I also don't know what day it is. So I realize I'm working on a Sunday and I'm just like, okay, that's a Monday, Tuesday. I mean, Mondays are still really difficult because that's the day that everybody comes back. And I feel like Garfield, like, ugh, I hate Mondays. I just want lasagna and I want Monday to end. Um, so it's it, that the Monday still comes around. I'm like, oh, I know this is a Monday because I'm getting a lot of angry emails. Um, so yeah, no, that's a problem. I'm trying, I'm trying to curb the problem. Oh, and I meditate a ton. That started in, I'm meditating. 
Um, I take it, I take a, I, I uh, belong to meditate, I do meditation classes online. And they try to open the studio because I was going in the studio and nobody wanted to go. And I prefer meditating with my teacher on a Zoom and I can put the computer next to me, I can meditate, I hear the voice, I hear the music. And then afterward we can have a discussion. I don't want to meditate with smelly feet. I remember being in meditation and this guy next to me had smelly feet and I'm like, I can't meditate. I'm going nuts here, you know, and right as Corona was happening, I was in a class and this woman's coughing and I'm like, "Uh Oh, I'm out of here. Like, forget it. I can't have this experience. So it is, it is helping some, it is improving. I mean, I, I, I'm now meditating. I'm taking all these classes, but in person, it was like, I would drive to meditation, have a nervous breakdown, being in traffic. I would get to meditation after screaming at people, I'd get back in my car. I just meditate it and I'm screaming and telling, you know, cursing at everybody, giving everybody the finger. And I'm like, I just meditated. This is ridiculous. It's funny because before our conversation today, I went to yoga. I went to an in-person yoga class and I can tell a lot about where I am in my life based on the type of yoga that I like to do. So when I lived in New York, I did, you know, Hatha yoga um, because my life was so crazy. I just wanted like really kind of calm um, yoga. And then when I was living in the Bay area, my life was pretty boring. So, you know, I was doing um, like Bikram and like super hot and then like going and jumping in the Pacific ocean. And then, you know, in Aspen, um, my life was very kind of, um, athletic, you know, so I'm, I was doing like a vinyasa flow. Uh, and today I went and did a, a hot yoga, which like historically I just hate. Um, but somehow the idea of like being really hot, you know, and like the sweating is feeling like cathartic, but the guy near me, it's not like anyone's close to you because it's all socially distanced and whatever, but definitely unpleasant smell. And I was like, you know, I just, I don't know if I can go back. Well, that was one of the big, re- I mean, I left and I want I've always wanted to end up, as always said, by the time I'm 50, I'm full-time in Los Angeles. And in 1996, I was at a crossroads in my career and I was like, I can go to LA and I got offered a job in LA and I still regret it in a funny way. And I stayed in New York, although my experience in New York was tremendous. And I think I did something that really contributed to New York in a way, and so I'm proud of it. But at the same time, the re at the end, what New York did to me, and I think I'm just kind of a loner and a weirdo, it was too much humanity. There were too many people around, and there was too much interaction. So I'm one of those people, I love being home, I love getting in my car, and I love going to a place, doing what I have to do, getting back in the car, and going home. And New York, to me, I felt invaded, I felt vulnerable, not scared. I mean, I didn't even lock the front door of my apartment, but I never felt scared in New York, but I just was sick of people around me. And I think that's why I'm liking the isolation because I feel more comfortable. So I like going to, when they open the gyms and I'm an avid gym person, I'm really active as you know, as you are, um, and very focused on my body. I was like, there's no way. I'm going to a gym and it wasn't even about Corona. I'm like, this gives me the excuse. And so I run on the beach every day, every day I go for a six to eight mile run on the beach and it's the happiest I am. There's nobody around. I go on to Playa, which is nobody's on that beach. 
and it's fantastic. And I'm by myself, but I'm in my body, which I think we need to do, especially at this moment in time. So it's amazing what you're talking about yoga and you were doing like, I'm going back to hot yoga, which I don't love, but you have to be in your body right now because I don't, it's the only grounding thing because there's so much uncertainty. There's so much frustration. I don't watch the news anymore. That's why I'm watching old films. It gives me a panic attack every time I put CNN in on. And I'm so worried about Anderson Cooper. Um, I think he's going to have a nervous breakdown. And uh, it's, it's this poor, uh, it's poor newscasters. I just, just watching them like stare for like 20 seconds. Like, can you believe this? And the, in the level of frustration, I can't watch it because they're making, they're giving me agita. Definitely. It's definitely stressful to watch. And I think you're right about being in your body. I mean, it, it just, I'm a very cerebral person, you know, as are you, and it's not the place to only be right now. It, it has to be both mind and body and spirit. So, yeah. So it's crazy. Cause I think a year ago, if you said, oh, Michelle, you should meditate. I'd be like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Like there's no way. <laughs> There's no way I would have meditated. I was just like, that's for, that's for weirdos. That's too LA. I can't do that. I can't get into it. And now it's my favorite thing. And it's been yeah. so helpful. And I think that's why I feel a lot of clarity. I think that's why I'm writing a lot. I think that's why I'm so inspired is because I am uncluttering my mind and I am taking all that clutter and all that noise and kind of putting it on a shelf and able to now be able to focus it's, it's, I think it's really refreshing. It's amazing. And I, I tried to meditate for years and I just couldn't do it. And then something just happened. Someone explained it to me in a way and it made sense to me. You know, she said, you don't have to sit for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. You can, if you want, but she said, you can also just meditate like while you're in your car, like waiting for your daughter to come out of ballet, you know, or whatever it is, you can meditate in whatever in between moments that, that you have. And she said, instead of checking your phone or looking at Instagram or whatnot, you can actually meditate while you're sitting there. And each of those minutes is cumulative. And I am now, today was my 778th day in a row of meditation. And sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's three minutes, you know, um, it's just whatever I need in that day, but I know that I have that as a resource. And if I find myself getting, you know, a bunch of angry emails or agitated or whatnot, you know, it's, it's, yeah, if it's Monday, um, it's, it's like, um, I don't know, it's an alternative. So it's a choice. And, and I think it's because I've, we've been put into this place right now that, I think all of this is really necessary. I mean, honestly, I, I said this again. I, you know, of course, I am very scared of this virus because it's very unpredictable and everybody's body responds to it a different way and long-term effects. And so, so, you know, there is some sort of fear on that end, but I just also am really enjoying being at home. So it's given me this understanding that it's, I don't have to be outside and, and I'm getting so much more done, but that also has to do with LA. You just spend so much time in your car. You know, it would take me 45 minutes to get to the gallery, an hour and 10 minutes to get home. 
And I just was losing that time, which could be so incredibly productive and I can work. And as I've been working much harder for artists, much harder. As you were just describing that, I had this idea of maybe where we are right now is kind of the part of the arc or the continuum of this idea of, you know, postmodernist feminism, right? Which is that you get to do whatever you want, you know, <laughs> like you get to make your own rules and you get to decide what matters to you and who you want to be. And that's it. You smart. Know? And somehow yeah. that's everything. That's a really smart thing. And you nailed it because it's exactly, that's exactly what, how I'm feeling. And I, I think a lot of people right now are feeling frustration and I don't feel that. I feel exactly what you just said. It's like sky's the limit. It's like I can do whatever I want, which I also find really interesting because when you're working digitally, you can kind of do that. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking with me today. I'm really excited about what you're doing and I love how our lives and our commitments to art and artists keep intersecting and I look forward to seeing what we can do together next. Thank you. This has been such um, an incredible conversation and also inspiring because you were hitting on a lot of things that were kind of dovetailing into things that I've been thinking about. And I love what you're doing and, and keep doing it and uh, keep supporting artists. Like I'll keep supporting artists <laughs> and we have to because it's a, it's a cultural imperative, especially now. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Heidi. Conversations About Art is part of Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.